0: were ever able to get inside my mind and hear my thoughts, you would understand very quickly that they fray in a bunch of different directions. Professionally I was a hockey player and now I'm a coach, so one would think that that's what I live and breathe, but that's not the case at all actually. Though I love what I do, there's so much outside of the game that I'm hugely passionate about. I love music, guitars, motorcycles, the arts, and I've even come to love history and geography through my travels, if you can believe it. My podcast is about all of these things, and I speak with some really cool people that I've met throughout my career, and let the conversation kind of take off. So join me, inside my brain, and welcome to My Motley Thought. Okay, a huge fist bump to everyone joining me today. Hope everyone is well through this continuing (laughs) shit show. Uh, My guest today, I'm very excited to have him on. This episode is taking a bit of a hard right (laughs) compared to the first couple of shows I did. A friend that I've met on my journey through life, he is an addiction specialist and the creator of the Neural Alignment Model. Some of his work includes plant medicine healing, and we will definitely talk about uh, psilocybin assisted therapy and his use of this method. A fascinating gentleman that I can't wait to talk with. Uh, time for some mushroom talk <laughs> with my friend, Mr. Todd Ritchie.
1: Hey, how you doing?
0: <laughs> I'm doing uh, well. You know, I, I I don't want to bullshit anyone and say great because it's a bit different right now, but all things considered, I'm doing well and yourself.
1: Yeah, I mean, I'm doing great. You know, it's, I think people are getting bored of listening to all this COVID talk. Uh, and yet how do you not talk about something that's so ever present and really affecting and influencing people's lives? Yeah. And so, um, you know, it's, it's been a transition for us. It's been a transition for the business for sure. Um, But I would say, in general, we're lucky, you know? I mean, I I think when you have the right uh, foundation and you have a good support network, um, you know, you're one of the lucky ones. You end up making it through these types of challenges. And and I think the fundamental belief system that I have with this type of adversity is that every single—I mean, this is cliché, and yet if you can believe the cliché has real truth and meaning, then it, it, I think it can really contribute to your life. I mean, it's, it, it's two ways of saying it. Pay attention to the collateral beauty is one, which is that when we go through real adversity, that there will be doors that are opening as well. And as, if we're paying attention, um, some version of sweetness or kindness or beauty or opportunity will present itself. And then of course, the other cliche is for every op- for every adversity, there's an opportunity. For every door that closes, two doors open. <laughs> and so if, yeah, if you're actually looking at it that way, um, believe it or not, you're, you'll are you be more uh, available. You'll be more prepared for when things show up.
0: Yeah, yeah, for sure. I, get, I guess the challenge is that so many people um, genetically or inherently have challenges doing that. Like, uh, like for, for example, say someone like myself, uh, it's kind of in my blood to kind of push forward and, and find solutions and, and, and try to, you know, make things better. If, if something's shitty, you know, try to push forward or make something better out of nothing. Whereas a lot of people, uh, have that a challenge when it comes to that. Don't, don't you think?
1: Yes. I, you, you, uh, you posited that question in a really interesting way. Um, Okay, so I have to answer that in a couple different ways, I think. Yeah, do I think that people have sort of proclivities towards certain tolerances, certain strengths, certain certain abilities, and then other uh, proclivities towards certain weaknesses? Yeah. Do I think that they are genetic? Well, there's some evidence that they are. There's some evidence that there's some influence related to behavior that's genetic. But I think more importantly, with the new terminology that, that we're using is epigenetic. In other words, what version of me has evolved and developed over my lifetime that um, has been affected in ways where there has been an environmental influencer that then makes me prone for genetic expression that manifests in different ways so that I become more vulnerable or less vulnerable. Right. And so I don't necessarily think people are born so that they're uh, prone to suffer. Um, that they're, they're already inherently necessarily weak or that they wouldn't be able to handle these things well, but over a lifetime, we become sensitized or strengthened.
0: Yeah, that makes sense. Yeah. I wasn't claiming to, uh, proven that that it was genetic it just seems you know over time and people you meet and and, and cross paths with that uh, maybe it's more taught than anything or just learned over and maybe not genetic you know like in the blood but uh it just seems i would say if you're around people like-minded people it kind of rubs off on you it makes makes more sense that way i wasn't trying to claim that i knew what i was talking about
1: <laughs> no, but I think but I think it's a it's a really valid point, right? Because certainly um some people believe that it's genetic. They believe that it's predetermined. Right. And they believe there's they believe they're stuck with a bad hand. And and that's that's a devastating thing. If you actually believe that, um you're in a lot of trouble. Yeah. It, you know, if you believe that you can't handle adversity. If you believe that you've been diagnosed from the age of five as, you know, some some diagnosis that limits your ability to manage life, or um, and that becomes an unconscious kind of excuse. And now you you've got a label, got a diagnosis, you're on medication for it, and that medication doesn't really allow you to change it. It just kind of bandages it, and now you're sort of stuck, and it becomes a part of your identity. And now mm-hmm. I am this dysfunction, Um, whether that's, you know, I am, I have ADHD. I hear people say to me all the time. And so I have ADHD taught, so I I can't really focus for long periods instead of thinking, well, I've learned over the years how to manage my ADHD. And, and so my brain seems to have rebalanced and I don't know what's happened, but I, I seem to be able to handle these things much better. But when you hang on to that old belief system, your brain will never change in a direction for the better.
0: Yeah, that makes sense. It kind of goes back to what I said in how what you're taught and uh those a lot of people that I that I know that have some of these challenges um tend to play what you've and you, we've talked about this at length, the uh, the victim. Uh and when you get caught in that loop, it's uh you kind of make things worse for yourself. Uh, and you, you know, you can actually, if you wouldn't mind touching on that whole basis of how you described it, explained it to me about the victim mentality.
1: Yeah. Uh, it, you know, without all the neuroscience and the psychobabble, you can actually look at this victim dynamic, victim addiction dynamic. And if you can buy into it and see it in yourself or in the people you love, it can be a very transformative and very quickly. And so what we've discovered is that, you know, you can go through a lot of traumatic experiences in your lifetime and you can fall into different dysfunctional behaviors or addiction or whatever it might be. And what we found is that all of those things actually heal, just like a wound, a cut, an injury, uh, we, we are built to heal. and and there's one thing that we discovered that actually prevent people from actually healing from psychological uh, wounds or and even physical disorders and that is that as a byproduct of some horrific trauma where a person was in fact being victimized what happened is they adopted the identity and the narrative and the story of not just being victimized but hanging on to that victimization where they tell that story, where they feel the byproduct of it, and where in fact they become the identity of victim. And, and that victim can show up as poor me victim, it can show up as martyr victim, which look like opposite sides of the coin, but either version of martyr victim where I'm gonna sacrifice for everybody and I'll never complain about everything, and inevitably that person ends back up in victim, they end up, the martyr ends up on the cross with the spear in the side and it doesn't end up so well. And then the the poor me victim is a very different type of victim, but the consequences are very similar. Um, Women in our culture have been culturalized and maybe it's biological as well, but have been culturalized in a way that they are more prone to the martyr victim. And, And if you're gonna find victim in men, oftentimes, it's more poor me. And, and that's just a, a gross generalization. I would say specifically, men can be both, but I would say specifically that the vast majority of women to me that end up in sort of repetitive patterns of pain or or dysfunction, um, that the, the majority of them have a martyr a martyr victim, addiction. As so we call it an addiction dynamic because that victim actually locks in the, the dysfunction, that victim locks in the story. And so somebody goes through a trauma, we say there's like a fracturing of the psyche that happens, like a timeline is in fact, like a timeline is created. I'm speaking sort of metaphorically, but almost not really. And so that person almost gets locked in, in time, that, 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 that alter that is fractured from the psyche, where, where the trauma happened at seven, is still seven years old. And when that trauma is then re-triggered, that person adopts the beliefs and behaviors and feelings of, a, of that seven-year-old child. And, and you can literally watch that person almost morph into a seven-year-old, the, the way they'll throw a tantrum or the way they'll react to the fear that they'll be consumed with. And so what we know is, or at least this is what we're, the theory that we posit, is that because we know we inherently heal, we're systems that are developed to heal, and that when we observe hunter-gatherers who have evolved this way for millions of years, that when they go through horrible trauma, they're not burdened with that trauma in perpetuity. They don't have PTSD. They don't have anxiety disorders. They don't have depression. These, these are non-existent things in all hunter-gatherer bands that we've been studying about for hundreds of years, even the ones that are around today. And so why? Why the difference? Well, it's complex, but but ultimately, today the, the, we hang on to this idea of victim, and so we actually lock in that timeline, that seven-year-old timeline, and then we start to act in a way to compensate for our victim story. It becomes the justification for certain behaviors, whether that's substance, whether that's a behavioral uh, uh, reaction, whether that's fear-based beliefs, wh- whatever that might be. Maybe I won't trust men for the rest of my life because of my trauma, and so. And because I feel like a victim of that, what it becomes is the justification for my addiction, which then actually reinforces the victim. And then you create this victim addiction loop. Mm. And so just to, just to finish up, we would go one step further and say the fast route to people overcoming almost any version of psychological dysfunction, and in many cases, physical dysfunction, would instead of to identify all their addictions and all their in their trauma-related behavior, um, instead, identify their victim, identify their martyr, identify how it's incorporated itself into their persona, into their personality and their stories, draw a line in the sand and say, even though I was victimized, we've all been victimized. That's the nature of life. Pain is a part of life. But what's creating my suffering is that I'm not only recognizing that I've been victimized, I'm recognizing and 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 holding on to the idea that I am a victim and if we draw that line in the sand and say I will no longer be a victim even though I've been victimized then you ask this question and people in the beginning need to ask it 10 20 30 times a day every time they catch themselves talking about self-limitation or some some excuse where they're blaming somebody else for their circumstances or where they feel powerless they're caught up in the victim and when they catch themselves in the victim then they have to ask themselves, if I'm not a victim, because I'm never, I'm never going to be a victim again. And if I'm not a victim, what am I? And so it's an interesting little exercise. And what seems to come up most regularly, Dusty, is people say, if I'm not a victim, then I'm free. Or if I'm not a victim, I'm, I'm empowered. Or if I'm not a victim, I can choose. If, if I'm not a victim, I'm the creator of my experience. And so what that question reveals at a deeper level is our authentic nature. Minus our victimology, we show up as who we really are. And then we create a different a different experience.
0: I guess the, the challenge is uh, getting to that point. <laughs> uh, and and uh, if, if you've been in that loop, as you call it, for so long, it's gotta be a, a huge, huge challenge to to see even see the line and, 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 and get to that point. And I guess that would uh, is a good segue into actually asking you and get, getting maybe backtracking a bit and and asking about your practice and, and asking about what it is that exactly that you do. Cause we, we kind of jumped in really heavy hard right off the hop. (laughs) And I, I, you know, aside from the short introduction, I never really got to uh, explain. And I wanted you to explain um, what it is you do your practice. Um, uh, it it was good to hear this right off the hop and now I guess you could explain what it is you actually do.
1: Sure. Yeah. So, um, almost 20 years ago I started as an intake counselor at a treatment program. It was a transition point in my life and uh, we were changing directions, got out of a business with my wife together. And, uh, and I was, I was always really intrigued. I was actually raised uh, by a father who had a drinking problem. My mother and father broke up. He was also very physically abusive. And so I went through a lot of abuse and neglect and abandonment. Uh, my mother took my other four brothers, moved away, left me with my abusive father for four years. And, and then, and then when my mother sent for me, the new man that she was married to also had an alcohol problem and, and a worse one, wow. and he was less violent and there was no abuse physical abuse but then there was like this emotional disconnect and and all the things that kind of come with that and so I was always uh, on the other side of the overt obvious addiction I in a sense learned to kind of become codependent I learned to kind of become an enabler but I did learn a fair amount experientially about addiction and and so um, fast forward in my life I guess when the opportunity presented itself for me to actually work in the field, um, I felt like, oh my God, this is a, it's a home run for me. I, I, I get this stuff already. Mm-hmm. And I, and so I, um, I got trained as an interventionist and an addiction specialist. And um, I, I didn't like my training. Uh, I thought it was rudimentary. I thought it was archaic. And, and so I actually developed my own model of intervention, which instead of based on coercion and shaming and 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 pressure and, you know, uh, ostracization, instead it focused on, first of all, understanding, bigger picture understanding. Mm-hmm. Then, then it focused on empathy. Then it focused on accountability and love and then hope and optimism and motivation moving forward. And so I developed this whole formula that I thought would be better at motivating people into uh, behavior and experiential changes. And so my the model that I developed was extraordinarily successful and much more uh, effective than the model that, that I was trained in. And so flas- fast forward really quickly, I had a, a very powerful experience and a poignant moment in my life where um, I had this big epiphany and then um, this informed my life. It's not like an epiphany that three day, days later you would forget. It, it was, was one of those peak experiences that it's hard to explain. It was it was almost a mystical or or a spiritual experience in a sense. And, um, and I was transformed by it. And that I also then knew um, what I needed to do with the rest of my life. And so I bumped into, uh, I, I connected with a neuroscientist from Caltech. And um, he was so captivated by the, the seminal uh, concepts that I presented to him, and it was fundamentally different than anything he had heard before. He did a couple of months of research to see if this had been presented anywhere else and to see if it al- already had been kind of debunked. And um, it hadn't. In fact, the science in the last five years had already started veering towards what I was suggesting. And uh, so we were kind of mavericks and and we, came up with this concept and we discovered a core mechanism of the brain and we developed a, what we call a unified model of human behavior we developed a psychoeducational model and a therapeutic model concurrently and and then we uh took it out of the field and started presenting it to people and did lectures at caltech ucla young institute that kind of thing and then also started doing doing it working with families and using it therapeutically and so uh flash forward um we had great success in working with every type of dysfunction it, it initially was sort of uh, geared more towards uh substance abuse and and the behavioral addictions mm-hmm. and then very quickly people started asking us "Well, do you think you can help my daughter she's a she's got a hoarding problem or do you think we can help my son he has ptsd or my daughter has ocd or and so we would start to apply it to everything in this mechanism in the brain we already theory- theoretically believed it would help with most forms of dysfunction if not all on some level and everything that we applied it to and it sounds like i'm shooting my own horn and i apologize for that but it's it's just a fact everything we applied it to it worked for and um so we knew we found something we knew we had something really special and then it became our passion you know to share it with the world co-authored a couple books I've written a couple more since then, and nothing ever really exploded. It never really took off. I mean, I worked with uh, some bigger organizations. We worked with uh, schools here in British Columbia, um, and and there was a, a lot of people championing in our process. And inevitably, one way or the other, it just didn't take off. And so here we are now. About two years ago, we introduced plant medicine, and the plant medicine has sort of become a vehicle because everyone's now seen the research on psychedelic, um, psychedelic healing. And, and so it seems like my model is like the perfect fit for psychedelics. We understand what happens in the brain with psychedelics and, and our model is used in a way to deepen that effect and and to enhance the overall benefit of it. And so here we've been doing it for the last couple of years and things are really getting busy. Things are really blowing up. I'm mostly uh, based on the, the uh, awareness around plant medicine and the excitement in the field and where I'm right now in Vancouver, British Columbia, Vancouver city council actually just a a unanimous unanimously approved to put on the docket, uh, the idea of decriminalizing all drugs from a harm reduction perspective in Vancouver. Um, it's inevitable that it's going to happen here in Canada, uh, Oregon, the entire state of Oregon just legalized all drugs. Um, Colorado, has decriminalized at Washington, DC, Oakland, California, Santa Cruz or San Jose. Can't remember which one. But anyways, it's it's changing in the world right now. And it seems like all of the scientific uh, data coming out empirically reinforced by multiple institutions is saying that we've got a panacea. We've got a curative um, um, source for healing so many modern day disorders. So it's like the most exciting time to be in my field. But just for anyone who needs hope, people that are on the on the brink of suicide or giving up or, or, or so depressed or whatever, there's such incredible hope uh, that is coming. We can talk more about that if you want.
0: Yeah, no, oh, most definitely. We're right, I guess right now we'll stick uh, on topic regarding uh, your practice and, and more so about the plant medicine and and we'll we'll dive over to addiction and which i i really wanted to ask you about uh later but right now with the plant medicine it was interesting that uh, i was listening to uh the joe rogan podcast um you know he talks about a a diverse uh, uh topic range you know, very very diverse and this one here i was listening to he was talking with two gentlemen. Uh, one was, uh, I think, his name was um, Murescu, uh, Brian Murarescu, and he wrote *The Immortality Key*, uh, uh, *The Secret History of the Religion with No Name*, and the book way out of my way out of my league. But as I listened, he was, it became very, very interesting to me. And they went down uh, all different kinds of rabbit holes, but one was about uh, uh, spiked wine uh, back in ancient times and w- going way back even before Christ and, uh, and before there was alcohol. And, and the use of, of psychedelics in religion, and then it, it went down all kinds of different paths, and then it went into mushrooms and uh the um what's that one amanita muscaria
1: right is that
0: yeah and he talked about that and it just went everywhere and as i'm listening i'm like holy shit i i gotta ask todd if he would come on and talk like obviously joe rogan had his uh mental capacity and his uh, intelligence is way beyond me but i do find it very interesting um and and the how science is taking uh i, I want to actually say going back because it was introduced a while ago and then totally shut sure. down by that gentleman that yeah. he that rogan had on the show uh his career kind of just got tanked and i can't remember that gentleman's name but now it's coming back around yeah,
1: could it be timothy leary
0: maybe maybe yeah and, and yeah. it just—I just find that this all very interesting. And you know, there's there's all kinds of uh, people that uh, still think drugs are drugs, and and uh, that's right. And I understand that. I'm I'm just putting this out there for people to be more informed. You do you know what I'm saying? Like everybody can make their own judgments, uh, but I just found found it very interesting, and that's why I wanted to ask you some of this stuff.
1: Yeah, Dusty. I mean, it, it's such a good question. You know, listen, in fairness to you, and a lot of people that think drugs are drugs, I was one of those guys. Uh, I was raised an athlete um, and you know, I played sports my whole life. And your body was a temple and you didn't put crap in your body. Now, not that some athletes didn't put crap in their body, they did, <laughs> but, 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 uh, but some didn't, you know, some really saw their body as a temple. And then um, and I was that guy. And I got to tell you, you know, my programming was, and I, I kind of, in retrospect, there's, I'm a little embarrassed to say this, based on what I do now, but my programming was, period. If you did drugs, you were a loser. And you know, I was a kid when I thought that, but um, that was my programming. And you know, that it's very endemic. It gets deeply programmed into the into the psyche, and so. You know, it took me, it took me, I, I never really did any hard drugs. I, I tried pot a few times and I didn't drink much. So, you know, what could I say to these people that have had these problems? And other than that, I was the sort of recipient, I was the codependent, I was the other side of seeing alcohol abuse. Right. And um, so what could I know? I, you know, that had greatly influenced me, of course. I was turned off of alcohol because of what I saw growing up. Right. But um, I, I guess, you know, somewhere around the age of 35 and I'm 57 now. So I guess about 22 years ago, I started researching and started changing my mind. And uh, and then I even tried a, a few different drugs, you know, sort of more experimental. I felt like I'm in a great relationship. I'm a very happy person. I'm not doing, I'm not trying these drugs to, uh, to, to change my life or to help me heal or to avoid pain. And I think that's really important. And so uh, I wasn't prone in any way uh, to addiction. Mm-hmm. And and so, um, yeah, over the next 22 years, I mean, in one way or another, we there, but I do want to implore them, you know, your old belief systems here might be holding you back and keeping you stuck in a place that might be just way more painful. These, um, what I can say comfortably, the, the uh, substances that have been um, identified as psychedelic in nature, seem to have a profoundly different effect than other illicit drugs. But if I'm just being an honest person, I I then have to say that even though I think there's some drugs that inherently uh, can pull us away from who we are, can pull us away from truth, um, that even those done and used with intention uh, with, with a real awareness. Um, they, even those drugs can actually still teach us something and be productive. Uh, but certainly psychedelics, what they do, something inherent in the property of psychedelics, uh, and it's, it's too complex. I mean, science doesn't even really understand what these, what these psychedelics can elicit in us and provide for us, but they seem to connect us to a deeper source of truth, a deeper sense of wisdom. And there's this sort of realignment that happens with psychedelics. And and so if if I was gonna simplify mental and emotional health, and this might feel like a gross simplification, but I could spend hours breaking it down and defending it. But what I would say is that directly to the degree that a person has the ability and the commitment to experience truth and then also the commitment to tell truth will be directly proportional to their overall health and happiness. And and that's a bombastic statement, but that's what I see. And so then anything that I use that might be able to bring me closer to truth, then actually starts to heal me. And anything that pulls me away from truth can start to hurt me. But then people ask the question, well, are you talking subjective truth or universal truth? And I, I am talking more of these universal truths. I'm not just talking about your opinions or how you were programmed by your culture or your religion, but there are universal truths. And there's most importantly, the truth of who and what I am. And, and so things that bring me closer to that heal me, and things that take me further from that hurt me.
0: They say that when you use psychedelics, it it, uh, it in some form brings you closer uh, to God or spiritually, whatever form of, of uh spiritual belief you have it seems to bring you closer right i've never um had the experience um i also you know my my daughter uh has been to uh, ayahuasca and taken that stuff uh a few times i think and has come out uh uh knowing things or or having these i don't, I don't want to say epiphanies but just uh clarities uh that uh, just kind of got brought to the forefront that she had been suppressing for a long time and uh she she's a big believer in in that uh it's tough you know I'm an open person you know and i am willing to listen to 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 anything uh as long as uh the person is uh can explain themselves and and, right. uh, and 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 I don't want to tr- like you know to defend their argument just an open conversation if we're both like minded that way usually I can get to the the bottom of what I want to know um but I I find uh there's a lot of questions that a lot of people have but aren't as open to it to actually listening to it, so that's why I, I, I'm I, I'm happy to have you on here and explain some of this. It's very difficult, though I'm sure, in the amount of time we have, because we've had a few conversations. You've explained some things really well to me. Um, it's a, a definite. Uh, it's definitely something that people that after listening to this should should do their own research. Uh, that's the biggest thing, and that goes with anything, Todd, uh, not just this topic but what we're dealing with now in the United States and and uh, the media and whatnot and I don't want to go down that rabbit hole at all p- politically but just point being doing your own research and and about this in particular about plant medicine and psychedelics and and some of the the, the benefits that are are coming out and being proven too in, in a lot of ways but you have to research that and to find it because it. It's not out there in the main uh, media. You have to go looking for it. Uh, I tried when yeah. before doing this yeah. with you. Uh, it's it's difficult actually. <laughs> the, the the first things that come up are kind of disputing. Uh, when you just do your basic searches, then if you keep uh, looking you find more and more proof uh, that this stuff is working uh, for people. Uh, I find it fascinating actually.
1: Yeah, you're right, Dusty. I mean, you know, a lot of people haven't learned to be good researchers and they typically will just sort of search for something that will reinforce the existing narrative that they already have. But yeah, I mean, if you if you objectively are searching for truth and you really want to know the truth instead of just supporting your narrative, then you're going to come to truth. Now, the the beauty of the plant medicine uh, renaissance or resurgence right now is that there's the the, the overwhelming evidence is certainly leaning towards uh, objectively the positive use and the positive outcomes related to plant medicine, and and so these aren't fringe uh, groups that are it's not like a bunch of hippies in the in the 60s that are playing <laughs> around right i mean e- even though the hippies are still doing it don't get me wrong and and, and i love the hippies and and i ha- i'm close friends with some of these hippies and and they bring they sometimes bring their substance over uh, that being said um you know the 60s 50s and 60s psychedelics and plant medicine was was really being explored and things were opening up and there was good science behind it. There were a lot of studies and research being done. And without, again, the politics, for whatever reason, the Timothy Leary did the old thing about dropping out or tuning out or whatever it is and screw the man. Well, that's that scared the man. And, uh, so he, he turned it into a class one drug. And the, the last thing the man wants is everybody thinking freely and mm-hmm. independently. I mean, how are we supposed to turn our little Autobots into the tax machines that they're supposed to be? Right. And, uh, you know, just following the orders uh, and so on and so forth. But, um, yeah, so, so right now you get to go to these credible institutions and you can, you know, at the top of the list, I would say, is Johns Hopkins. Right. And you can take a look at all of the studies at Johns Hopkins. I mean, there's a resounding reinforcing uh, um, outcome, which is all of the studies are producing positive results. They're not having a single study suggesting that there's a negative related to uh, the proper application of plant medicine specifically in this case psychedelics and so that the plant medicines that that they're working with would range from or the psychedelics that they're working with would range from psilocybin uh, to dmt to lsd mdma ketamine and I don't know that they're doing any work with ayahuasca or ibogaine, but but a lot of people are uh, doing right. research on those as well. Um, but then there's other institutions like NYU and McGill and you know universities and incredible learning institutions all around the world now are getting grants and doing this research. So it's been over 15 years that these top-notch universities have been delving into this area, and it's now hundreds and hundreds of studies, and so. Um, whether people know about it or not is a little bit secondary because we need to share that information with people because the results are in. Right. And the be- the beautiful thing is, dusty it seems like it seems like now, from my model's perspective, what we understand about the brain, we're going to surmise that literally almost every form of, of of psychosis, every form of dysfunction. I shouldn't take that back. Psychosis is not what I meant psych, uh, um, uh, sorry, psychopathology, every form of pathology, mental illness, uh, other than schizophrenia or psychosis, um, and many forms of, of not just mental illness, but like chronic pain, um, you know, even chronic pain, they're starting to see really positive results. And so it seems like almost everything they apply it to, it has a very positive outcome. It's important, though, that we do talk about schizophrenia and psychosis, because even though I believe a person who's struggling with schizophrenia and psychosis still has hope and still can work with with, uh, plant medicine and still can work with psychedelics, um, it's not something that they should do, certainly not on their own, because there is evidence that that psychedelics can actually increase or enhance um, arbitrary random events of psychosis for somebody that already has a propensity for it. And then that can end up being potentially dangerous if they don't know how to interpret uh, their hallucinations, if they don't know how to, um, and this is going to sound crazy, but they don't know how to learn from and take advantage of their hallucinations, uh, then then it can actually end up being dangerous. But almost everything else that it's applied to, it's working for.
0: That's incredible. Uh, Sorry, you were going to say something? Yeah, I was going to
1: say, working for, I don't mean just helping a little bit. The term they use with psychedelics is curative the term we use with other medicines is medicinal, right? Curative means that we're seeing people do one, two, three therapeutic interventions or ceremonies and healing a 25 year depression or healing a 25 year drug addiction or overcoming an anxiety disorder or PTSD, like God healed and then follow up a year or two, two later and still, um, doing well, thriving. And so the efficacy related to your measurement metrics, whatever you're using for efficacy to determine that um, is up around 70% for most of the things they're using it on versus traditional therapies and medicines, which might be around the 30, 35%. So, and you're not dependent on them for the rest of your life. It's like 70% and then maybe you're done. Maybe you're healed. And, and that's so that the, the uh, the preliminary results related to these new things that they are trying for are also very positive. So That's just exciting. It's so exciting to be involved in this.
0: I guess this is a good uh, segue into the actual topic of addiction. Um, I'd like to, you know, obviously when I introduced the show, um, <laughs> as I was reading it, I re- I just wrote it real quick. And as I was reading it, uh, sounded very connective. Like I was, uh, sharing that, um, I was an addict. Uh, <laughs> and that's how, and that's how I knew you. It, it just the way it came off. Um, right. you know, w- we do have a, a, a connection, uh, that w- I wasn't, uh, myself personally, that it was, uh, you know, taking the uh, plant medicine to, to cure an addiction. However, um, I do have uh, uh, plenty of uh, history and and stories uh, around uh, addiction and alcoholism and things like that. Um, my grandfather was an alcoholic and uh, it's weird because it, you kind of just live through it and don't even really realize it when you're a child, but you look right. back at things and and it starts to make a difference uh, when you think about and how it changed you or changed your mother or or things like that but um i do have a, a history uh with uh, with alcohol I, I i was a junior hockey player from 15 i started real young and uh i i play the old saying i played hard and partied hard and harder harder <laughs> uh all through my career till i retired from a being a professional hockey player at 37 i think i was um and it was weird because i never drank uh in at meals you know just for have a beer it was like the it was the party the atmosphere it was like go hard or go home and it, but I remember after retiring, uh, there, I think it was a, a birthday surprise birthday party right after I'd retired back and we were here in, in Vancouver and uh, wife had a, a surprise party for me. And I ran my head into a wall and ended up in the hospital and and uh, woke up in the hospital. actually don't remember it. And um, that was the last time. Uh not the last time I ever drank, but it was the last time I partied and I'd have a beer here and there, but it was, and it wasn't like I quit that day, but, uh, and that was, you know, 15 years ago or whatever, but it's been for sure 10 years that, you know, I, I don't drink anymore at, at all. And, uh, but it was weird because I talked to some people and this is where we go into the topic of, of genetics or, or, or learned uh, thinking. Uh, I was able to do that. And still, like, it's not like I'd I love a good crown and and, and ginger. Uh, <laughs> uh, I used to love, uh, you know, whiskey and, and, and stuff. And even, you know, I'll be in the airport lounge, and I'll look at the bottles and go, wow, that would be nice to have them, but I don't. And uh, I'm okay with that. Uh, but some people aren't. And I just, this topic, and your connection with it, and your teachings i find it fascinating and i i just wanted to share my st- brief story first that i'm not just asking and i don't know what's going on I, I have a connection with it but i also have people in my life that aren't able or in in their eyes aren't able to control it like i did and uh i want your take on that
1: yeah i mean this is <laughs> a it's a controversial topic. Um, there, there is a and it's culturally endemic, and that is fundamentally that you know addiction is a disease, and it's an incurable disease, and and there seems to be evidence. I mean, if you observe it, I mean, depending on your metrics for what you define disease as, you know, you could probably find ways to support that, and people do, and I think that with the very best intentions it's kind of heartbreaking but with the very best intentions it is fundamentally this belief system that actually perpetuates the dysfunction it is it's not only this belief system it is it is our individual and collectively systems that seem to create the vast majority of our behavior that lead to the vast majority of our experience And so I can give you a a variety of different examples to provide evidence for why we should change this concept of addiction being an incurable disease. There's there's so many reasons why. For one, um, it it becomes the best excuse for unconsciously or consciously choosing to indulge because you have the best justification. I have an incurable disease. Uh, I, I have no control over this. And so how do you expect me to, to stop? The, the prevailing wisdom is I have no control. What do you mean? And so also don't beat me up because I have a disease. Also, don't judge me because I have a disease. And so it's so counterproductive. Even that, again, if we talk about the ideology that's being promulgated, um, you know, if, if I even said I agree with 80% of it, mm-hmm. that that 20% that I don't agree with, the evidence is so clearly destructive that that 20% outweighs the 80% that I think is wonderful and good and well intended. And so, um, what we, what I can say is in the 20 years that I've been doing this so that we don't bore people talking about brain science, we have to distill it down and create a language that, that, uh, in lay terms, everyone can understand because we have to be relatable. And so, and so you come up with these concepts that you've heard before that can kind of support this, but then also call into question and challenge that predominant modality of this incurable disease. And so I'll present this to you. In biblical terms, there's the saying, the truth will set you free. And okay, so what does that mean? That's a pretty abstract concept, the truth will set you free. I think a lot of people will have had some experiences where they were lost in duplicity or or lying or or hiding or secrets and felt the the imprisonment of that and so on a surface level the truth will set you free is like oh god i got that lie off my back and now i can tell the truth and that feels that much cleaner yeah but we would take it so far as to say this is this is a really bold claim and i don't we don't have the hours to support it so i'm just going to say it and and i'm going to let it (laughs) dangle and people can either They can either choke on it or they can shoot and enjoy it. And that's (laughs) them, I guess, but um, that we would take it one step further and say that if a person actually has a, a, an intense veracity, a commitment for telling truth, but then also in conjunction with their commitment to telling truth, that they actually have the ability to tell the truth where the cognitive mind, the processing, the thinking version of me, and the emotional version of me and the sensory version of me all tell the same truth to the degree that that's aligned with truth will be directly proportional to my uh, level of dysfunction, pain, and suffering in my life. So so what we're saying is, is that any dysfunction can be healed if that person can acquire the commitment and the ability to tell the truth. And and so we could take that, again, I know this sounds bizarre, but I've worked with schizophrenia, I've worked with psychosis, I've worked with all of these things. And all of them fundamentally have physiological changes in the brain that limit that person's ability to tell the truth, its ability to tell the truth. They might be committed to the truth, but their ability has been subverted, hijacked, sabotaged in one way or another. And so if I can give that person a framework, if I can give that person a tool in some way that improves their ability to tell the truth, they'll get a little bit better and they'll actually feel it and they'll see it and they'll be able to attribute it to the tool that allowed them to tell truth. And then they get more committed to the process of truth and more committed to sort of the um, other processes that allow them to discover the way to take control of their brain and physiology where their ability to tell the truth also improves and as that belief system and that motivation and that faith kind of spirals upward so will there'll be a direct correlation with their overall overall well-being that sounds too good to be true but in fact is true so if you're dealing with a schizophrenic well what do you come up with you've got to help that person realize that the little green men around them are illusory that they are part of a hallucination and maybe it's not something so obvious as little green men maybe it's the uh, you know, their best friend. Uh, maybe it's a little girl with black hair and red eyes. Maybe it's that it rains inside your house, but it rains fire. You know, so there'll be certain things that, that our rational brain will help us um, overcome, and then certain things that seem believable enough that it's, it's more challenging. But without going through all the examples of the people that I've worked with over the years, Um, what we can do with plant medicine and other therapeutic processes is actually reboot the brain in a way where not, not only does the experience of the plant medicine help you tell truth, but the introduction of processes and tools and a way of of, of perceiving things will also help you tell truth. And then to the degree that you can, you instantly, well, you, if you could tell a hundred percent truth, you could instantly overcome your, your eating disorder, your anorexia, your, schizophrenia, your alcohol disorder, your gambling problem, your conflict with your wife, your borderline personality, you name it, your ability to tell the truth and your commitment to that sooner or later will actually rebalance the brain chemistry. And then as that brain and body chemistry rebalances, it just gets easier and easier to tell the truth. So the truth will set you free
0: through all of that, what you just explained it's funny because you, you use the word layman's terms uh for dumb people like me is basically what you're saying <laughs> it totally it, i can't explain it all but after when i've talked to you in the past it made sense to me um it the and the connection of the the plant medicine i ha- i can't speak for that personally so i can't really give my opinion Uh, But as far as truths and that connection of uh, opening up to moving forward or whatever direction you want to go but can't, that part makes 100% sense to me. And, it, you know, our fields are so different, but as far as uh, helping people uh, and my developing uh, players, uh, goalies, uh, and getting them to open up, let their guard down, and when you just said truce, like everyone 's got views of themselves and and it 's ingrained in them, and they 're very defensive about it and i i don't have a a degree uh in 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 getting people to open up and let their guards down, but that 's exactly the way I go about coaching it's uh a huge you You call it a model, and you actually have a model. mine just started developed, uh but it was all based around that, and getting them to have trust in me and faith in me and what i'm saying uh but it's when you can recognize and i've seen it happen with the players when it when they have let that guard down, and they're open to the truth the the improvement is uh unchallenged at that point the the sky's the limit if you will and it just seems very interesting to me in in your model about that and the truth and i i hope uh someone can hear this and get something out of this even if they don't go even if they don't use plant medicine uh, just that simple um Uh, helpful tool uh, can be huge I think for somebody Uh, I I hope some of this uh, gets to some people right now because like I said earlier then I wrote this down you know just about the importance of the crossover and the connection of what your profession is and what is going on right now in the world to me is very important I know a lot of people are having a very tough time with this, and and subsequently, or uh, that maybe weren't addicted before uh, to something, whether it be alcohol, uh, drugs, and then the depression and suicide rates. Uh, I just wanted, really wanted to get this out there, and you know, to to people and maybe get to someone like you or you know, maybe not you in particular, but wherever you are in the world that can get help. Uh, I, I just find this connection and crossover very important to me.
1: Yeah, I mean, first of all, it's so interesting that you, you use the analogy of, of working with goaltenders in professional hockey. And it seems counterintuitive that what you're actually doing to help them become a better goalie is get them to drop their guard. <laughs> <laughs>
0: I never, I never quite looked at it that way.
1: <laughs> it's almost like working with boxers. As soon as I can get <laughs> you to drop your guard, where normally I would tell you, well, that left you wide open. Now you're going to get slugged oh, in the yeah. head. But now your boxing is going to get really good. <laughs> but uh, I mean, I totally understand what you mean. There is a qualifier that, that we want to say, um, you know, again, just for safety first. And this isn't because I want people sent to me or people coming to me. I'm, I'm already way too busy. But that being said, all the empirical data suggests that doing plant medicine in a therapeutic, safe, healthy environment where set setting and dosage and a lot of other variables are incorporated into the process is, is so critically important. Now, there'll be people out there that will argue with that. There will be people that will tell you, no, I'm, you know, pop down on your couch, lie down on your couch or your bed, and go ahead and take a mega dose and go on your journey and it'll be transformative for you all you got to do is set an intention and then trust the medicine and boom well that happens first of all there's there's a lot of inherent risk because we don't want people playing around with plant medicine this is this is very powerful medicine doing it on your own even though it could be transformative also could make you feel like Maybe I can fly and that I'm just gonna jump out the third story window. Yeah. And the last thing we want is one person getting injured because, you know, even though Big Pharma and their medication might kill millions of people around the world a year, we're used to that now. And somehow that's not a news story. I'm not suggesting that anyone go home and take five or six ounces or five or six grams of mushrooms. What I'm saying is that there are groups out there. And, and and those groups you can probably find. But there are groups, and, and if you need to find a group, you just look me up online and I'll point you in the right direction. But there are groups out there that are helping people already. There are therapists out there that are risking their license to help people already. And there are uh, provisions being put in place and dispensations being uh, created that allow people under certain circumstances to work with this plant medicine now. So. We're so darn close, but um, I, I just want to advise against you know doing this on your own. All the empirical data suggests that the the higher efficacy is done in conjunction with with a therapeutic support.
0: Interesting. No, that's a a good uh, thing to mention for sure because I do know people that uh, use recreationally uh, and. Uh, i know of people that have had some bad things happen uh on their own uh but having said that like like you said if you use things without guidance or direction anything can happen i don't care what it is uh you know taking uh perks on your own uh, without uh you know per you know any kind of you know medicine. Um I've seen it go sideways, uh depending on the person yeah. and and like we talked about with types of individuals. That's right. I, I could take perks, uh, uh when I had my surgeries and felt great. <laughs> <laughs> but once it was done it was done. I was yeah you know and it I never really felt that um connection probably a bad word to use regarding that but some people it it gravitate they grip to it and and you this is your field uh but i it's a good message to send out there because we don't know which ones you know some person might do this on their own and 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 without guidance and might might go the wrong way for sure i i appreciate that message Uh,
1: yeah safety first i mean
0: Oops! Sorry, you broke up there.
1: Yeah, I cut you off. Yeah, I was just saying safety first, right? I mean, even though we're stepping into this new realm, this new area, it's not new. They've been around for millions of years. Um, Mushrooms were here before people were. Uh, (laughs) You know, they're they're just a phenomenal plant. But you know, as we're endeavoring to step into a new realm of of therapies, you know, we want to step gently and respectfully. honor these medicines, and they really are medicines. So, um, you know, let's temper our excitement and make sure that we take the necessary steps so that we can actually have a positive outcome instead of potentially a negative one. Um, That being said, the medicine itself, you know, uh, it's probably the safest drug on the planet. I would say even safer than aspirin. It's just it's not necessarily safe if there's not somebody there to guide you Right. because you might get up and walk around and fall down, trip and hurt yourself. I mean, there's a lot of things that could happen, but the the, the uh, psilocybin, that's not going to hurt you. Um, like I the actual very- what
0: is in your body. Right. It's what can right. happen from it uh, that's if, right. you're, if you're not uh, guided. Yeah, no, that that's right. makes it's, That's good to know, actually, for people that don't know, like is you put something in your body, like, for example, meth, or heroin, like people know now that that stuff when it goes in you, it, it's it's doing damage in you. Not just mentally, it's doing damage inside of your body. And it's kind of funny that you we talk about this. That what alcohol, <laughs> for example, it's is legal as can be and and accepted in the public as can be. But that stuff in your body is slowly but surely doing damage inside of you and not just yeah. you know, not just you know what can happen when you take it but uh, uh that's good information to know about that the actual consumption that part as far as your what you're explaining isn't isn't harmful
1: no 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 the, the the substance itself is for the vast vast majority of the population is perfectly safe now you want to make sure that you're not picking the wrong mushrooms again i wouldn't recommend you going out and picking your own magic mushrooms not that i'm a you know a super cautious person by nature but when you're starting to share this with people and you want it to be a part of a renaissance or a movement where people are healing from it you know you, you put those precautions in place and so there are there are mushrooms out there that can look a little bit too close to different types of magic mushrooms and and they could be deadly and so right. you know you want you definitely want reliable sources and you want to be responsible and mature this isn't for me look this isn't about partying this isn't about recreational drugs it's all about healing and so when we do that first do no harm and then do it as responsibly as you can and and then you get the benefits which uh, you know that's the magical part of this but you know we, we don't want to do anything that's sort of ends up really damaging the movement.
0: Well, the, it's crazy. I was looking at the time here. We're already over an hour and uh, I can personally, I could talk about this stuff all day long because I find it uh, really, really fascinating. And uh, I never did ask you when I mentioned that book by that gentleman, Brian uh, Murorescu, did you, have you ever heard of it?
1: No, I don't know it's it's
0: it's an interesting read it's 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 out there but the the immortality key and he actually went i think he was over in europe for a year and he was in the vatican uh down in the basement uh they're doing research and they they had uh, i don't know the word but people testing chalices uh, for the the residues in the inside uh, in, that they, nobody had ever been allowed to do, and what was in these chalices, and they're finding these types of things.
1: Uh, it makes sense, though.
0: Well, yeah, I, ju- I just find it. If you're, if it's scary because we talk about you know what people's minds are like and and researching, and they just simply want to click a button, and read something, and be done or they don't want to know because <laughs> uh, it changes direction. And and some of this is out there and can really, really put a knock on some other things that are traditionally set in stone, if you will. Uh, That's right. But it's a very interesting read and it goes into all kinds of uh, beer uh, and, and how beer was different <laughs> back in the day. It was not... Uh, that um, uh, recreational drink uh, and and it, the wines and the mushrooms and the psychedelics, it was just a really interesting read. And and having you on here, talking about all of that and then the addiction uh, practice is just really important to me. I appreciate you, Todd, for for coming on. On <laughs> I. This one has been a, a, a much different than the past uh, my first two pods, and I wanted to uh, ask you it just seems so heavy that I was going to ask all my guests a few questions <laughs> <laughs> it seems like kind of i don 't know i 'm going to ask them anyways if you don 't mind uh, oh please the, the first one was your favorite band because we never even got into music at all, which i 'm a huge fan of. But uh, I want, and this probably throws you off. You're probably, I wasn't prepared for this. Oh, I'm ready. Do you have a favorite band, Todd?
1: Uh, favorite band, I'm just going to say that, of course, you know, we have, all of us have like probably several favorite bands at different yeah. stages in our life, right?
0: For sure. For sure. I
1: remember, uh, I remember in the early 2000s, I was madly in love with Coldplay. Right. And, uh, and I know now some people mock Coldplay and I don't get it. I just think they're so talented <laughs> and so good. I, I, I don't like them. You know, like people make fun of Nickelback, right? And yeah. Not that I was ever a huge fan of Nickelback, but it's like it's like the uh, pop culture oh, turns yeah. on on some of these bands and then they start making fun of them. But um, I think if I if, if I had to listen to one source of music from an individual or a band, for the rest of my life, I'm going to look for somebody that's prolific, you know, somebody that's really got a, a diverse body of music, but a large that enough body. Sure. And um, it, it, I guess if I had to pick one, I would probably pick Elton John. Good you know, but, Great but going stuff, back yeah. to the '70s more, you yeah. know, where him and Bernie Taupin, I mean, they just created such remarkable music. It's it's also hard, just because of the incredible amount of content that they have. And so much of it is good, even though some of it I don't love. But if I could take a band that I would break up and I could not only take the music from that band, but then also from the individuals, once they broke up from the band,
0: right then
1: it'd be, it'd be hard not to take the Beatles.
0: Oh uh, Yeah. Yeah, for sure. It,
1: it would also be hard <laughs> not to take Genesis because you'd have Phil Collins, Mike of the mechanics and Peter Gabriel.
0: Yeah. Yeah. And so I, I, of course I leave it to you <laughs> cuz you're you're obviously very intelligent to to break it up this way. I've never heard that way of of uh breaking how uh, breaking up a band and where they went in the, in and they created more music almost like a branches, right? Yeah. Very interesting yeah. take on that. And that that kind of answers my second question. It's like your favorite genre. But so I already know. Uh, now uh listening to what you just said Elton John is a huge one for me too he's uh you know obviously his his newer as he's gotten older and he can't sing the same anymore i still have mad respect for the guy but i don't yeah. like it anymore Yeah. but his <laughs> his greatest hits if you uh it's masterful masterful yeah. stuff and the last one right now um if you just looked on your uh, iTunes or whatever you uh, use for listening music. What do you have right now? What do you, li- what do oh, you Wow. Okay.
1: Now? Okay. So the people I'm in love with right now, right, right now, it, it, you, you probably won't have heard of this guy, but you got to look him up. Okay. He's unbelievable. His name is Emmett Fenn. Emmett, Emmett Fenn. F E N N. Yeah. Unbelievable. I don't even know how to describe the style of music. It's like a, it's a, a little bit electronic in a sense, but but also mellow. But but uh, oh, it's just so creative. But then there's a genius in my mind, a genius that has come out musically lately. She's a young girl. And normally I would shy away like, come on, who wants to listen to that kind of bubblegum music? Right. Um, but her name is Billie Eilish. Oh, yeah. And, uh, yeah, man. Just what a talent
0: my wife hates her, but uh, i it 's funny cause, <laughs> because i 'm a i 'm a rocker you know by heart and 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 my history, but uh, I also recognize talented people, and I recognize that in her uh, right away, and I downloaded quite a bit of her stuff just because it's it's a she has a real interesting take on her, on her writing and choice of sounds and how she sings how yeah how she it's very different like at first you're like oh that's a wimpy voice but the more you listen right she's she's got she's got some talent for sure no i i've got a question for you what what
1: well there's a there's a canadian contingent of really top-notch canadian musicians right now i mean we've always had some good musicians up here but sort of you know, poppy and hip hop music, and so yeah. we've got four of the most popular artists in the world right now um uh do you know the four that I'm talking about really at the top of the at the top of the list Drake Drake number yeah, yeah, okay, who else
0: and this is tough because I don't like that stuff at all um <laughs> uh Bieber.
1: Beaver, yeah, yeah, yeah.
0: <laughs> so I don't even like using those words, don't normally come out of my mouth. Um, uh, mind you, Beebs does play hockey, so I got to cut him some slack. Right? Yeah, for sure. There you, um, there you go. <laughs> I'm trying to, no, let me think. Top, top,
1: another Canadian.
0: Those are the only two that come to my there's mind.
1: A, there's a bunch, but you've heard of Sean Mendez.
0: He's Canadian.
1: He's Canadian.
0: Come on. No, I, I've heard of Sean. Yeah, Denders. and
1: also, yeah, and also the weekend is Canadian. The weekend.
0: Um, you know, it's funny. My kids are all followed my suit as far as being rockers and whatnot. Uh, <laughs> the three yeah. boys went to the weekend, and I was like, what are you doing? But they said, how dare you? They would never, I never it in public, but they said it was an unreal show.
1: (laughs) Yeah, man. I actually, I actually love all four of those guys. I really do. I think they're all super talented. I think Drake is a prolific writer. I mean, the guy just song after song, album after album. And a lot of it's good. A lot of it, not all of it, but a lot of it's good. And Bieber, as much as people might want to tease him, he's talented. Yeah. He's talented. He's he's a good he's a good artist. I mean, again, we again <laughs> same thing. And then Sean Mendez is on top of the world right now, you know. And there's a bunch more too. But yeah, so I, I like all of them. So who's who's your favorite rocker band of all time?
0: You know, it's it's a tough one uh, to say all time because I listen. I have so much <laughs> music uh, in my. okay
1: okay wait 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 you're on a stranded island acdc and what's that acdc acdc and
0: you're on a stranded island like and i can only listen to like yeah. yeah oh geez i got but i get to listen to all of their library all of
1: it all of it yeah
0: yeah maybe yeah because if you pick something mellow you're gonna probably get to Preston die on that island. <laughs> so, so, so I'm gonna rock out.
1: Rock so, it up a little. Yeah,
0: yeah. ac I, I, there's so many. I love you know Van Halen. The older Van, you know with oh, the. Oh yeah. Hang-off. I'm a huge okay. Van Halen fan, but like, you know, and the funny thing is, a lot of people, you know, I love some Stones, but I'm not a. There's a lot of stuff of theirs that I don't like because sure. there's so much. Yeah. But yeah. Uh, ACDC, yeah. it's funny because I just on my I did a, a bonus pod that I'm going to release right after recording this on Friday, and uh, it's just a shorter version. It's just me talking, and it talks about music and me growing up and how it changes you and shapes you. And I just mentioned at the end uh, some bands I'm listening to now that I just I'm hooked on, and like kind of what you were talking about. And, uh, and then the next episode I'm going to do, it's going to be more, uh, introducing some newer bands. And I also said that, and if you know anybody taught locally, uh, I said that I outro with, um, I'm, I'm with music and intro with me. the intro music is me playing, uh, right now. And then the outro stuff I did the first two episodes, I outroed with uh, my youngest son, Mac. And you know, Mac, uh, a couple of his songs uh, that he wrote and and sung. And so I put those out there. But the goal is, I can only put my son's songs on there so many times, is to uh, ask the people to send me their music and indie bands that are copywritten and want their stuff to get out there. And if I like it, I'd love to put it on. So if you know anybody locally, I definitely want to, to do that that's a kind of a goal of mine this one our conversation is a lot deeper but uh, in general it's more so stuff that just interests me and stuff right. like I'm talking about but if you know anyone
1: <laughs> a couple more questions for you as yep. a music aficionado and and you play music so now you're you're talking about your intro and outro um your favorite guitar player of all time <laughs>
0: that's going to be in an episode. Hang on one second. <laughs> I wrote some <laughs> down. I, 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 hang on. Give me
1: maybe t- don't, don't spoil it then. Don't spoil it.
0: I, I won't name them all, but I'll just let, I want to think of who I wrote down here. Yeah, it's tough. I love Stevie Ray Vaughan. God rest yeah. his soul. I was a big Stevie Ray Vaughan fan. Uh, Eddie for sure. God rest his soul. Uh, uh, and I like, yeah. I love Eddie for yeah. for a couple of reasons because, and people that didn't grow up with that wouldn't know, but uh, he changed music. Not a lot of people can say yeah. that. he changed yeah. his instrument, uh, and that yes. and and yes. that it, it, there's so many great guitarists out there right now. So many, it's crazy. It's like sports, you know. People are just better and faster and yeah. And, Right, people are, are just unreal now. But not many can say they changed their instrument, the the, the progress of their instrument, and and he definitely did. And uh, right. and I grew up with that, which is pretty cool.
1: I got, yeah, I mean there was Hendrix, and then Halen.
0: I got Hen- Hendrix, Jimmy that, that made the. Yeah, for sure. There there's so many great guitarists right now, but. Uh, you know, and even guys like Jimmy Page and from Zeppelin and stuff, the great, awesome guitarists, um, but there's only a select few that actually did some things that nobody had done and changed the direction. Like, can you imagine when, like, guy like Chuck Berry or somebody early, early on, they're playing guitar and they just decide to crank the, the um, their album that doesn't have any pedals or effects on it and just crank it so it actually is all distorted. <laughs> and sounds like, and, and people are probably going, what the hell is he doing? And then that turns into distortion and rock and roll, and it just gets heavier yeah. and heavier. You know what I mean? People like that, yeah. that change music, I, I find very fascinating. But yeah, Stevie Ray Vaughan might be up there at the top for me. Uh,
1: okay. Yeah. Nice. So uh, I, I, I'm i so curious do you feel like rock and roll is still alive or is rock and roll dead?
0: great question uh, um i I think it has a a tough hole that had been dug for them uh and I don't know who dug it but it's been <laughs> it's been years and uh the the rockers will always be there and and loving them but as far as fun, like uh industry-wise and financially and where the money's going uh i think it's come back a little bit but just compared to what is out there right now it's but i guess it's not a race you know what i mean like it's not like who's winning uh i think there's some awesome rock and roll music out there but if you look at billboard and where the money's being spent and the kids nowadays uh where, where the downloads are coming from uh, it's tough to compete with hip hop um, and the, the R&B, uh, you know, that, uh, that movement of what is, you know, the, the bill, even the, like the Billie Eilish's and the, this stuff that is out there is obviously that's not rock <laughs> and uh, right. there's still stuff being sold and, and doing well, you know, the tours in rock still are doing well. right now nobody's touring but when touring was happening they still do well but yeah it's a it's a a tough hole that kind of got dug for the for the the rock world it's weird it's been years it's been years that they've kind of yeah have to just live in their niche almost that's just my opinion I don't know if you agree. right
1: yeah 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 you're right the the touring seems to still be mostly the old popular rock bands. Like, yeah. you know, the, all the 75 year olds are still on tour yeah, well, and they're yeah. doing a great job when you yeah. speak of the Rolling Stones or whatever. It's yeah. put on a great show. Yeah. Well, and yeah, ACDC puts so, on a great show.
0: Some of the, the biggest tours, money-making wise, tour wise are rock and roll like U2, ACDC. These bands still yeah. generate huge revenues in their touring. But record sales, uh, well, you can't even call that anymore. It's so weird how things are now. Like it's
1: right. What's a down, record? What down, is a record?
0: Downloads. Yeah. and you can download You buy iTunes, rent. You know, you pay for that monthly subscription, so you don't pay for an album. So it's it's contracts that they're getting uh, through iTunes, I guess. But I, but. No, no, They don't make their money that way anymore. They make their money from, from merchandise, no. from sales in, in, right. in these areas and touring. It's, it's a weird industry. I like don't I, understand I, it.
1: Yeah, it is. I, I, I'm sorry, you're, you're leading me down this vortex and I'm so interested now. <laughs> I've got another question for you. Okay. What is the last album...
0: Sorry, that say that you again. You just broke up.
1: ...on a record player. Uh, what is the last album that you heard on a record player, the last album that you listened to?
0: Okay, well, that question doesn't work now for me because I bought a new turntable and oh, I, brought, okay. I, I brought them all out. And I actually just went, I have a place here in in Surrey, White Rock area called Red Rum Records, and they have all kinds of old albums. Like you can go to stores and buy new ones re-pressed, re, uh, But this has people, they've brought in, you know, you trades and you can go through these, sift through these albums for a dollar, five bucks. And I bought, you know, like Bob Seger, uh, David Bowie, Rod Stewart. Uh, What do we got? Uh, I bought an old Van Halen album that I can't find. Uh, uh, Yeah. So, um, the last one I listened to today was the Ziggy Stardust uh, one. Oh wow! Oh uh, yeah. yeah, an old and it's old, like it's seventy-five, uh, five, four. Yeah, I guess yeah. somewhere around there. But yeah, yeah wow! It's wow. I love listening to the the presses and the albums. the The sound is just it, it for me. It brings back uh, memories of my childhood, and that's yeah. a good. It's a good feeling. So, yeah, not only the music, but just the putting the album on, putting the, yeah. the needle on the album. And I think that just, uh, it brings back some great memories for me. and makes me feel good in the shitty 2020. <laughs>
1: <laughs> yeah. Right. No doubt. Did you ever go through that stage? Did you ever go through that stage where, um, you know, of course we went from albums and then I think, you know, there was this battle between CDs and then, and then, I don't know if you ever heard, but there was this stage for a while, maybe only lasted a couple of years, where they, they were already doing MP3s, but they also had these things called mini discs. Did you ever see the mini discs?
0: My stereo uh, is a, a Bose stereo, but I bought it in Japan when I played there. Uh, and in Japan, um, mini discs uh, went way, 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 way bigger. It never, ever took off here uh but it was huge in Japan and I have oh. uh still probably a hundred mini discs that work in that stereo wow. that I have in my office. So yes, I remember that. Like I I I was such a excuse me such a music fan from an early age that I had them all like uh what I could afford anyways. I so I had albums, uh, had eight tracks, then I had tons of tapes. I remember in junior when I would drive away to whatever city that I was playing in Lethbridge or whatever, I'd drive my Ford Temple and I would have in my back seat five cases of tapes on <laughs> ready on play on my 15 hour drive to Lethbridge. And uh yeah, did the tapes and then Cause I, we, we didn't have a ton of money uh, growing up. So I was the. Uh, in switching from tapes. Everybody was moving to CDs and I was hell bent on not changing. Cause I couldn't afford it. So I kept tapes as long as I could. And it wasn't until I turned pro actually, that I actually finally bought my first uh, what, uh Discman. So that would have been 91. So I was late. Like I, there were CDs out, but I was still a tape guy and, uh, I didn't uh, switch over and then now so you get all these CDs and now you don't even need anything anymore you just play it on that's your right. phone yeah it's kind of kind of sad in a way because when I have these albums you, are, you open them up and you have the in sleeve and you listen to read the lyrics look at the pictures of your f- favorite uh, artists and bands and all that's gone man
1: <laughs> it's just like a good book I mean most of that's gone too
0: hundred percent. Well, I'm not going to yeah. lie. When I talked about that book, I asked if you'd read that in the mortality key. <laughs> I, I bought it uh, on audio, uh, on audio. Yeah. So I'm just yeah. you know, lazy man's way of reading. Uh, listening. Yeah.
1: But, yeah, absolutely. I had a buddy uh, that I went to high school with. His name was Wendell and he had, man, that dude was in love with music. And, you know, all kinds of music, but he really loved funk and hip hop and rap. And he had the cassettes too, like boxes and boxes of cassettes, but he'd make cassettes. He'd spend time, you know, picking his favorite songs and making mixed tapes and then bringing them to school and sharing those tapes. I'll never forget that. And then I actually, when I was a young kid, I, I I tried to have a production company, an entertainment company for a little bit. And uh I inter- I invited him to be my DJ. And so his nickname was his nickname was DJ Bubba Loo. And we were <laughs> <laughs> and, and we were doing like reggae on the river and the uh Harper Mountain ski bash and things like that. It was it was such a fun, it was such a fun time. But uh yeah, so my old buddy was my DJ and I'll never forget all the the the, the C- no. The uh, cassette tapes.
0: It, yeah. Thing, yeah, I totally remember. And I remember doing that. And it, people that don't even, most people don't, wouldn't even know what tapes are. You yeah, know, the younger folk, but how hard it was, <laughs> how time-staking. It was, it was you, you would have to, and, and with tapes, with albums at least, you could just pick up the needle and move it. Tapes you had to press rewind, it'd be like you have to, (laughs) yeah, to try to get the right song. So you have the double cassette, and you know, the one that does the recording, and you would have to fast forward and take you however long, and you'd be too far, go to back, forward, back, forward, back. That's right, got it right. Maybe you're
1: on the wrong side.
0: Yeah, it just went, it was an endless struggle to try to get the right mixtape. I totally remember it that's the i I, I will say this that's the one benefit now with itunes and these types of platforms you make a playlist it's like bing bam boom you're done (laughs) and you got your playlist ready to rock and roll
1: yeah it's beautiful yeah beautiful
0: well hey bud i want to thank you for coming on man i really appreciate it and uh we gotta we gotta do this again because uh it's always such a pleasure it's always such a pleasure talking with you Todd. thanks so much buddy
1: oh well thank you so much for the invite and anytime you want to do it again i'm down
0: right on bud take care all right
1: have a great day take care
0: Todd for coming on the pod today. It's always a bit of a mind bender when I chat with him. And this is just a small sample of Todd's knowledge in the field of addiction therapy. If you'd like to know more about Todd and what he does, you can go to www.trynaps.com. That's t r y n a p s.com. You can also go to www.rebootyourbrain.com. He also has a TriNAPS Facebook page and Instagram and just so you know NAPS stands for Neural Alignment Psychedelic System, not uh, taking a nap and going to sleep. Also if you are really really in need of help right now, he said you can call him at uh, 694-356-9197. That's 694-356-9197 if you or anyone you know is having a tough time right now and would like some kind of help just extend your hand man and encourage them to seek the help they deserve well that's it thanks again for listening i'll leave you with a little something i jammed out last night i don't have a, a name for it so let me think let's call it uh, Dusty's shuffle and knee happy holidays everyone and remember stay safe stay connected and god bless